The European Union's vaccination effort is faltering and there's still an ongoing struggle with supply. Now, the pharmaceutical firm AstraZeneca says it will have to reduce its supply to Europe by a further 25%. Ouch. In other more positive news, however, Johnson & Johnson's jab has been approved for use in the block. The rollout, though, is expected to take some time. Since it's Friday, we'll also be winging across the Atlantic to hear from our New York correspondent, Henry Reese Sheridan. As always, he offers us a break from some of the headlines and we look at the fault lines of American culture. This week, our perspicacious prognosticator tackles the topic on no one's lips, the flip phone. And we'll be paying tribute to Lou Ottens, inventor of the cassette tape, who passed away at the age of 94. Monocle's panel here at Midori House tackle these cutting-edge stories today on the late edition here on Monocle 24. Hello and a very warm welcome to the late edition. It's Friday the 12th of March, and I'm Josh Fennett. Joining me today are Monocle's Editor-in-Chief, Andrew Tuck, and our Head of Radio, Tom Edwards. Now, eagle-eared listeners might have heard someone yawning while I was uh, reading that, and that's because it's late on a Friday evening. It's been a busy week. Andrew Tuck, I'll come to you first. (laughs) (laughs) Um, we, We have a few listeners who've written in this week saying that a man matching your description has been seen skulking around a clinic in Ealing this week. Um, can you put these rumours to bed? Well, there was a terrible rash and I had to go and have it seen to. <laughs> no, um, I had my first vaccine. So, I thought you uh, were suffering with chronic fatigue. That would have explained the yawn. <laughs> uh, sorry, is it the yawn isn't is not the, 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 what lies ahead. It's like, the, oh, it's so nice to be in the safe comfort of Josh Fenner hosting this show. Yes, so um, so the good thing about getting a vaccine is you get a vaccine. The bad thing is it kind of slightly outs you for your age. So I'm in the category that is allowed now to, um, let's put it this way, get its vaccine. And uh, I must say that, because this will, will reflect on the stories we're going to look at today, it was supremely easy. So you get a letter through the post. It says, you know, uh, you can now um, have your vaccine. Go online. Here's a, here's a number. All you have to do is put your this number in and your um, your name, your postcode, and it, and then it generates a, a list of places where you can get your vaccine. I had the AstraZeneca one, um, and at the same time you book your first uh, appointment, you book your your second one. So I know that already my second uh, vaccine will be on May twenty fifth. And after that, I intend to be on a plane and leave all you youngsters behind <laughs> and be flashing my vaccine passport if they'll allow us to have one. But no, I, I, and, and when I went to the 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 the, um, the 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 pop-up kind of clinic to get the uh, the vaccine, I, I arrived a little bit early, but I was I was registered, given my card, given the injection, and out within five minutes. Amazing. Um, why you were dressed as an old lady remain, <laughs> remains remains a mystery, but we're all delighted that you've got that jab. Tom, we'd all been hoping here in the office that your demeanour and maybe even the standard of your work might improve <laughs> when your kids went back to school and nursery, um, respectively. Clearly these things take time, but are you in a bright mood heading into this windy weekend in London? It has been very blustery, hasn't it, Josh? Um, yeah, I, I think it's a bit of a slow burn, but it's been good to have them uh, back. I, I don't know, these these small steps that make you see what you know the the old the old normal was was like i don't know i feel encouraged by the week even though i did get rained on very badly earlier in the week um i still have a sunshine my usual sunshine demeanor 
And that's why when we came in, you weren't wearing any trousers. They were on the uh, <laughs> radiator. You've got to wear them out, Josh. You've you got to wear everything out. A lot of material there, a lot of material. Mm. Um, first up, we're going to be looking at the upshot of this week's vaccine news. And it's been a rather bumpy one for the reputation of the AstraZeneca jab. Italy... Norway, Denmark, Bulgaria, Thailand, among other countries, have suspended use of the British-developed vaccine over a suggestion that it's been linked to blood clots in recipients. The World Health Organization, I must add, and on the other hand, say that there's no evidence to support this suspicion. Let's take a listen now to Martina Stevis-Gridneff. Apologies if I've butchered your name, Martina. A contributor to Monocle speaking on The Globalist this morning. She reports on the EU from Brussels and for The New York Times as well. The EU was a few weeks behind the US and the UK in striking agreements with pharmaceuticals. That wasn't catastrophic in any way, but what's really bedeviled the EU rollout has been major supply shocks of vaccines um, due to problems with production by the pharmaceutical companies, in particular in the first quarter of this year. That's really set things back. And Europeans have watched Americans, Israelis, British people just race past them um, in terms of getting vaccinated. Just as an indication, six and a half percent of European Union nationals have received at least one dose of the va- of a vaccine. Contrast that to about a third of, of Brits and 18 percent of Americans. Martina Stevis-Gridneff speaking here on Monocle 24 a little earlier today. Andrew, we're going to start with you. The AstraZeneca vaccine, we've spoken about it a lot. And rightly or wrongly, it's had a bit of a a PR nightmare from inception to now. It's probably not the fault of the people that created it, but is there anything that can be done to, I don't know, revive its reputation as something that people are clamour for rather than uh, rally against? Well, it's interesting because just, as you say, in the last few days, we've had this story about a, a tiny group of people who seem to have had a blood clot in the hours or day after after receiving the vaccine. But as is pointed out by kind of everybody who's looked at these numbers, that's not surprising. When you think about all the things that are likely to happen to a large group of people the next day, it wouldn't be surprising if somebody had a heart attack, somebody was run over by a truck, somebody was bitten by a dog. It doesn't mean it's got anything to do with the vaccine. And I think most people are saying, look, just ignore that, carry on. And certainly here in, uh, in, in, in the UK, we've been told, just ignore this, it's not an issue. Even the European medicines uh, authorities have said, actually, it's, it's better just to press ahead giving people the vaccine. But in the meantime, you've got places like Denmark and Poland and Thailand saying, we're going to pause and we're not going to do this. So the minute they do that, it puts in people's mind, OK, this doesn't look good. Already people have been cautious about AstraZeneca. And as I said, you know, I've, I've had that vaccine and I had no reaction whatsoever to it. it you know, it was it was it was perfect for me. Now. I would I would say that they what we need is politicians just to keep quiet and allow the medical people to get on with it. So there's that issue. Then today, and more EU voices saying that they should add extreme uh, reactions to uh, the virus being one that registers one of the side effects. Again, that's going to cause problems. And when it comes down to it, you know, the Europeans need more of these vaccines, not fewer, and they need more people to to use them and and have uptake. Because one final thing, I think, the interesting thing here in the UK is, and we know there are certainly difficulties still within um, black and Asian communities, for example, but here in the UK, you get to a tipping point where so many people have now had it 
the, the, the reluctance to have the vaccine and to have AstraZeneca dissipates, it goes away once you get these numbers. So I think everybody you speak to now says, oh, yeah, I'll have it. Even people, when I was speaking to them six months ago, oh, I don't think I'll have it. I don't think I need it. Now people are like, yeah, when, I can, when can I have my vaccine? I want to have it. And um, readers in the Monocle Minute, listeners to Monocle 24, we're going to keep you abreast of whether or not Andrew Tite is bitten by a dog in the immediate <laughs> aftermath of having the AstraZeneca vaccine. Tom Edwards, the EU expects, at this point I'm going to say hopes, to inoculate 70% of its population by the summer. Um, we hear a lot of these figures bandied around. Is it actually a bit dangerous to set uh, targets that are probably quite easy to miss? Or is it quite good to building that reputation for vaccines, saying everyone's doing it, we've all got to do it, this is the way out. I'm interested in how we kind of communicate that to people, but are you for or against these kind of targets? Well, I think you can set ambitious targets if you intend to try and reach them and if you're going to then do the rest of your job in encouraging people to play their part. I think the baffling thing about the block, and I'm always loath, I'm always loath to write off you know, the 27 in that single breath, but they've all been fairly consistent in this, as has EU central bureaucracy. Um, they're still complaining about poor supplies, particularly from AstraZeneca, which I can't help but hear this. You know, we want more supplies of that drug that we're not going to take. It just reminds me again of that old joke about the food here is terrible and such small portions. I mean, they need to decide what they what they want to do. And critically, they need to get their public on side. It's funny, you began this section by talking about uh, the poor the poor press of, of AstraZeneca. And I think Andrew's experience is interesting. In this country, it has pretty good PR. There's a sort of strange national pride. People have bought into this idea that it's sort of come from, you know, our clever clogs in, in Oxford. And people, I think, have bought into the idea of it as well as the efficacy of it. Um, the bloc needs to decide... What is their position on this? And they've been chopping and changing. Individuals bear some responsibility. We've spoken before about Merkel and Macron changing their mind. Um, I find it incomprehensible when the stakes are this high and we don't, we're not, we don't want to get bogged down in the detail of how bad the, this ongoing surge in, across the European bloc could be once the Kent variant takes hold, etc. But clearly, they are at a significant disadvantage, both in terms of supply and in terms of public buy-in. And that is not going to improve until the people who are issuing the messaging to the public get on the same page. Well, we're going to be following the story closely across Monocle 24, but now for something completely different. Yes, it's Friday, and that means it's time for a sonic dispatch from our New York correspondent, Henry Reese Sheridan. Henry, take it away. Senator Chuck Schumer getting a little grief this morning, not just for his phone etiquette during a meeting, but for the kind of phone he uses. Hello? Call you back. Gotta go. Call you back. Schumer was holding a virtual meeting with Transportation Secretary-designate Pete Buttigieg yesterday when his phone rang during the event. He showed he was using a flip phone, not a more up-to-date touchscreen device, and he's actually known to embrace this older technology. His flip phone even rang two weeks ago while he was speaking on the Senate floor. I hey, give him credit. I mean, I, whatever works. You know what? <laughs> these, these waste so much time. When you Senator so Chuck Schumer is a New York Democrat and the Senate Majority Leader. He's central to the realisation of President Biden's agenda, and he's famous for, among other things, using a flip phone. But why is that of note? After all, it's not unusual 
for a septuagenarian to prefer the technology of yesteryear. It's because smartphones are portals for the most potent aspects of the internet. And so to not use one in 2021 is to mark oneself out as taking an ascetic, Amish-like stance towards the world. Commendable in its rejection of a seductive modern evil, but also disconnected from mainstream society on a fundamental level. We feel understandably ambivalent about one of the most powerful politicians in America assuming this stance. I was a relatively late adopter of the smartphone. I got my first one in 2014, an iPhone 4S that was a hand-me-down from my father. At the time, I was living in Bristol with a group of artists. I myself was not an artist, but what I lacked in creative talent, I made up for in my aversion to getting a real job. And so I was accepted among them. One of the artists I lived with was known as Golden Boy. He was so named for his flaxen hair, gold-framed spectacles and prodigious talent. That year, he won a place on the postgraduate course at the Royal Academy of Arts in London, one of the most prestigious art schools in the country. Around the same time, another friend decided to move to Berlin and offered me his room in a converted warehouse in North London. And so, when Golden Boy drove from Bristol to London in a rented white transit van at the height of summer, I rode shotgun alongside him. The Royal Academy of Arts is in Burlington House, a Palladian mansion in central London. Burlington House is also home to several less glamorous learned societies, including the Royal Society of Chemistry. But the real chemistry in Burlington House is happening in the Royal Academy of Arts, the chemistry of unadulterated creative expression. Because one of the many perks of being a student at the RA, as it's known, is having access to the student bar and its supply of heavily subsidised alcohol. There are parties there almost every night. In his second year, having established his reputation at the school firmly enough that his association with me could compromise it only marginally, Golden Boy started inviting me to these parties. I was the square among the cool artists, dancing among them to ironic 90s R&B playlists. The soundtrack lubricated my fantasy that it wasn't 2016, but in fact 1997. In this fantasy, I was Charles Saatchi, attending Sensation, the show he organised at the Royal Academy that launched the careers of many of the young British artists. Within this fantasy, though I was the most boringly dressed person in the room, I was also the most powerful. This illusion proved difficult to maintain when I left to cycle home on my 2005 Doors Galaxy touring bike. I navigated by occasional glances at City Mapper on my iPhone 4S. This arrangement is probably not Charles Saatchi's preferred mode of transportation. 
It was after one of these long rides back to North London that I arrived home to find that my iPhone was no longer in my pocket. I had, of course, neglected to back up any of the data on it. I was particularly distraught at the loss of my photos, which documented my exciting first year in London and the early days of my relationship with my now wife. But I was also aware that had I experienced these same biographical milestones just a few years before, the photos wouldn't have existed. I wouldn't have had a smartphone and I wouldn't have felt the need for one. In becoming emotionally attached to a piece of technology, I had allowed for my capacity for pain to be increased. Off the back of this epiphany, I considered replacing my smartphone with a dumb phone, but I found that I couldn't. Since moving to London, I had become a blinking node in the vast network of the modern information economy. And by this time, the smartphone was a critical conduit through which more important and rapidly blinking nodes within that network could send me instructions. Most white-collar workers are in the same position. We're not powerful enough to do away with our smartphones. We are beholden to people, be they freelance clients or conventional employers, who want to communicate with us through whatever channel suits them, whenever it suits them. And so we are tethered to the smartphone, a device that has the capacity to transmit information in a diversity of formats and which is on our person for almost all of our waking life. But if you are almost exclusively issuing rather than receiving instructions, you don't need to accommodate other people's preferred modes of communication. You can choose to communicate exclusively through, for example, conventional phone calls with a flip phone. Moreover, if you were a public figure, the unconscious awareness among the general population of this power dynamic would lead them to register your flip phone as a powerful talisman, even as they mocked it with the rational parts of their minds. Chuck Schumer, a master of political optics, must be aware of this. What's indisputable is that his use of a flip phone is a positive choice, because on April 1st, 2017, he posted a picture of himself with a smartphone. There was a caption. After years of being mocked for my flip phone, it said, I'm finally turning over a new leaf. Schumer has since reverted to the flip phone. And it's because he understands that the dumb phone is the communication technology of the truly powerful. Our man in the Big Apple, Henry Reese Sheridan there, everybody. Isn't he a funny chap? Doesn't he say funny things at funny times? Um, Andrew, uh, one of the things that Henry talked about there, was a, it was a tough thread to follow, but uh, <laughs> I, I, I stuck with it. I did a couple of those signature tuck yawns throughout, but you know how it is. Um, one of the things he talked about there was um, the smartphone, this ubiquitous uh, thing which most of us carry with us, not always being the best thing, and also the lack of one being a bit of a signal of power. Is there some some truth in that that we can lose the capacity to communicate that a great smartphone has and communicate more effectively with a with a dumb phone, maybe? Well, there, there certainly is this idea that many chief execs, if you look at the phone they have, they've, they've kept the same phone for like 10 years and they often have a, 
a really kind of basic Nokia in their pocket. So I think they like it, one, because they, they're they supposedly a little bit less easy to kind of like tap into and kind of, you know, you're, you're a little bit more secure. It also says, actually, I have somebody else who does all of the kind of like the menial stuff like driving my car and finding where I need to go. And uh, I've got a secretary who can uh, take your your appointments to see me all, all those things. So it, it's a, there's a bit of status symbol by not having to be surrounded by all, all of that stuff. But how great if you can strip it back and you can be more focused in your life. You know, we all know that we all fall into this trap of endlessly scrolling, checking our messages when we don't really need to. So if you can pull yourself away from that. In, in fact, there's an interesting book in your in your Monocle Weekend edition on Sunday, Sunday, looking at this notion of, of email and how do we turn it off and, and how do we move away from being bombarded by information all the time. So I do think there is a fact that many smart people don't have very smart phones and that includes um, Mr Tyler Brule who, who runs this 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 uh, this mighty ship because yeah, he's stuck with Blackberry all, all the time in fact there are lots of things now and there are pretty good maps and things on a Blackberry now but again he likes it because it's it's a tool for communication for him simply for for sending messages and he finds it easier to use the keyboard and he doesn't worry about whether he can take photos uh, for Instagram because he doesn't have an Instagram account so Tom, could you handle being disconnected if I took away your smartphone and gave you a uh, Nokia thirty three ten? Could you could you handle that? Would you would you actually find that impacted on your life very much? Uh, well, it would it possibly might. And I thought you know Henry makes this point about it being this big power play. I don't know. Do I could I exude power? Would it just be the question of changing my handset? I'm not sure that's going to work. Um, <laughs> I think it would take more. <laughs> I think it would take significantly more. I might need some sort of mobile version of one of those old fashioned Bakelite telephones to wheel around on a little on a little piece of string to to head in that right direction. And with that image firmly in our listeners' minds, uh, we're going to talk finally on today's show uh, as a bit of an homage to a man who lived much of his life behind the scenes, but whose creation changed the lives of many. Dutchman Lou Ottens, who died at age 94, is credited as the inventor of the cassette tape during his work for Philips. He also had a hand in the creation of the CD, the very first CD, so good for him. Let's take a listen to our senior editor and host of Monocle on Culture, Robert Bound, speaking on Monocle 24 about the joys of a good old-fashioned mixtape. The physical sharing of music is very different to clicking a link and, and, and sharing it with your friends on WhatsApp or whatever. This is, it was something that, I mean, obviously we also made, we made mixtapes for our loved ones. You know, this was a, this is a, this was a thing that you did at school. You put hearts around certain, certain song titles. You, you the order of the way that you put things together suggested um, uh, the, 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 the sort of rhythm of a romance. I mean, you know, the, the, these are very personal things that were very personalizable. I'm sure kids do it in their, in their own way today but oh well, doesn't it make you feel fuzzy and warm just talking about it Robert Bound there speaking on the globalist he can make anything sound cool can't he he could he could, he could talk us right off the edge of a cliff and you'd you'd follow him lovingly um Andrew have you ever made a mixtape for anyone and if so please can you tell us some of the songs on it <laughs> gosh well I've still got loads of tapes from when I was at university and yeah, there was a good thing at university but my friend Nick was at uh, UEA and we would send each other tapes of you know like music we'd discovered and music we liked and I've still got all of those that he then went to live in Turkey he used to send me like weird tapes of like Turkish music and things and they were great they were like they were like audio letters in a way that you got to see what people were kind of passionate about and uh, you know, I did make tapes but the, the, the strange thing I didn't like about tapes was you know they, they were always unspooling inside the cassette player and then you'd have to like there was this kind of horrible process where you had to try and pull them out without tearing and then the one bit of the tape had creased and it was all crackly and things but 
Um, I don't know. I, 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 you know, I, I still love them, and I think I wouldn't get rid of them. And I still do have a cassette player in my house. Is it is it weird and a kind of needless anachronism to keep them around, Tom? Or is there again something? Are you talking about me or the tape? <laughs> <laughs> Just um, Andrew Tuck, Do we need him? Um, no, but uh, about keeping these things around because obviously fewer fewer cars, if any cars now, would have uh, would have would have a tape slot. Is it a thing that we should consign to the dustbin of history, or is it worth keeping around? No, I think definitely worth keeping around. It's funny you said about cars because for me that was the thing for me with with my mixtapes in the sort of mid nineties, just when I could drive, or you know even more so actually when I was a passenger in my friends' cars who were a bit older than me who already started driving was to have aforementioned mixtapes in the car. You know, you we an Iggy Pop top dri- down <laughs> driving around. <laughs> No, but it's so evocative. I, I, what Andrew said, and you get that funny thing, like certain songs feel wrong to me if they don't have the funny bit that goes quiet halfway through because <laughs> that's the bit that's, yeah, got stretched out. Um, I, I think it's really, it's really interesting. There's something in what Rob said, again, it's something, I don't know if it's just nostalgia, it feels more romantic that it's an analogue mix of tracks that you send to somebody. Um, even if it's not a, a, as part of a romance, it feels more romantic than, well, even than a CD was. And certainly more than, oh, here, you know, listen to my uh, playlist that I've made on, on Spotify. Something about the tangible. I guess that we're all into that. We're all fairly analogue and a bit old-fashioned. Also, just one last question, because the producer specifically told us to be quick and we're take absolutely <laughs> ages on this. Um, is there something about like the, the ownership of music as well? Because if your um, subscription to, say, Spotify or wherever you get your music expires, all of the music that you have amassed disappears as well along with the 5.99 or 10.99 a month that you pay but you still own a tape don't you is there something about owning the music and having just one copy which is kind of special as well I'd like to say yes, but my other memory of those damn tapes was that you'd make amazing mixtapes or someone would make amazing mixtapes for a party. And at the end of the party, some oik, like <laughs> half inched and put in their bloody pocket half of the tapes, all the things that you, all these amazing things that had been made would vanish. In fact, I think I've got one or two myself, but anyway. <laughs> but also giving people control over the medium means that you can also fairly easily record over someone's beloved... <laughs> tape which is obviously a problem as well tom when you were learning barbie girl your your very famous uh, karaoke <laughs> classic which you've been known to do on many work trips you know you could have you could have ruined a fairly good album with that uh let's just say everything to do i've attempted to strike all of the memories associated with that from the audio and psychic sort of psychiatric <laughs> record so uh, don't try and antagonize me josh a good producer would play us out with Barbie Girl. But on that note, that's all the time we have on today's late edition. A big thank you to Andrew Tuck and Tom Edwards with me here in studio at a safe distance um, in Studio One at Midori House. Thanks too to our editors today. Our studio manager was Louis Allen and our Milan-based producer was Ed Stocker. The late edition returns at the same time on Monday. But for now, and hopefully for the near future, I'm Josh Fennett. And have a barnstorming weekend, won't you? Bobby.